Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. What made a woman and two boys sick after a UFO encounter in 1952? What was the Strange Creek Monster? Why did the military try to cover it all up? Hey there, and welcome to the uh, 524th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. I'm Ben, and those uplifting questions came from my co-host and partner in the paranormal, my dad. And this evening, we welcome back an old friend and the uh, foremost researcher on one of the most bizarre uh, years in uh, UFO history research, and that year is 1952, the year before you were born, actually. Yeah, remind me. Oh, I, I just did. And the Summer of Saucers, as it was called back in 1952. And we do welcome calls this evening. The number is 401-766-1240. And from anywhere in the U.S. or Canada, 800-449-1240. Frank Vecino Jr. is an author, illustrator, speaker, and independent researcher who grew up in Connecticut, as did I. Graduated from the prestigious Payer School of Art in Hamden. He also studied film and video production at Phillips Junior College in Florida. His interest in UFOs took off in 1990. Ha, good pun. When he, of course. When he studied crop circles that had appeared at a relative's West Virginia farm and the frequent UFO sightings in that area. Frank then tackled the 1952 Flatwoods Monster or Braxton County Monster case that had occurred in the same area that year. He has become a major authority on the case and works with our mutual friend, nuclear physicist and UFO great Stanton Friedman. Frank's book, The Braxton County Monster, The Cover-Up of the Flatwoods Monster Revealed, is currently in an expanded second edition, came out last year, and the result of his ongoing and tireless research is contained within its pages. He is also the author of Shoot Them Down, The UFO Air War of 1952, his website, www.flatwoodsmonster.com. So, Frank Ruscino, welcome back to Behind the Paranormal. Great to be here again, guys. No, it's great to have you. Actually, it's been it's been a long time since you've been on. It's been about a year and a half since you've been with us. That's unbelievable. Yeah, yeah about uh, when the 2012 edition of the book came out. Now, since then, we have the updated and revised edition, and I have a great new documentary video on YouTube, too, guys. Cool. Well, nice. We'll, we'll have so we'll before, a chance to talk about that. Yeah, so but before we get into that, want to give us a little uh, brief overview of the Braxton County monster case for our listeners who may not know about it? Well, uh, 1952, as you said before, was the year of the saucers. It had the most reported UFO sightings of Project Blue Book in its uh, history. And the Flatwoods monster incident occurred at the end of uh, the summer, about 1952. It was basically uh, September 12th. And it turned out to be one of the biggest, probably the biggest UFO flap uh, as I found out after working about 20 years of um, a flap of uh, about 21 hours of UFO sightings on that particular day. And what happened is there were several UFOs that came in over the eastern seaboard and flew into the United States uh, damaged. And one of these crafts flew across Washington, D.C., as reported by the New York Times. It was called the flame over Washington, and it flew a little over uh, 200 miles west, and it landed on a hilltop in Flatwoods, West Virginia, which is the geographical center of the state, and there was um, a bunch of young boys who were playing uh, pickup football 
on the Flatwoods Elementary School that night. They saw this thing flying over. It stopped in midair, had flames coming off of it, and it dropped and descended towards the ground. Well, this group of kids ran up to the nearby house of Mrs. Kathleen May. Two of her boys were within this group that were playing football. They talked Mrs. May into going up to see what had landed up on the hill in back of their property. And to make a long story short, because you know we've talked about this before, guys. Sure. This goes on. Oh, yeah. <laughs> make a long story short. Kathleen May, the group of boys, and um, some dogs, it was a neighborhood dog, and a couple of the um, family dogs proceeded up into the back portion of this uh, farm where this craft had landed. And route to going up to see where this thing had touched down, they started to encounter this um, mysterious sulfur-smelling gas. Uh, it irritated their eyes, their nasal passages. The kids started becoming sick. They were coughing and gagging. They had no idea what it was. They kept pushing upwards as they're walking towards this back mountaintop. As they got closer to this particular area where there was a, a, a big uh, oak tree, it was a white oak tree set about four foot off of the path, uh, they're looking up into this area where it touched down and this sulfur-smelling gas was uh, permeating from the area of this tree, and it was coming down the hill towards them. The dog that was leading the path yelped as it ran into this, this like it was like a fog gas mist. It took off and hightailed in the other direction and went back to the house, and subsequently the following day they found the dog dead on somebody's veranda. Mrs. May was leading the, the group with Gene Lemon, the oldest uh, boy in the group. And as they got up towards this tree, they heard these uh, funny noises, like thumping noises. And they redirected their flashlights up into the area where this, the sound was coming from and where the mist was, uh, the source of this mist and gas. And they saw these eyes approximately 12 feet up in the air was up by a, a tree branch at first thought they thought it was a possum and when the beams of the lights hit this area where the where it was actually a face in the head where these eyes were located it wasn't a, an owl in a tree or a possum it was a gigantic structure metallic like and it, it kind of looked like a robot it was described right off the bat in the united press as looking like a mechanical man was approximately 12 foot tall had an ace of spades covering over its head with an interior helmet that was red with two big porthole eyes the lower body flared out and the lower portion had big gigantic pipes that went equally around the circumference of the body so basically, it was like an inverted cone, and this thing was actually floating. The the smell that they encountered, this disgusting sulfur smell that got them sick, that was the exhaust. It was part of a propulsion system, and this thing hovered across in front of the nearest witnesses, and it went back out into the field and everybody ran back towards the house, and that is basically, in a nutshell, what we have is the Braxton County monster. Where the the myth of the monster comes into the picture was one week later, uh, Kathleen May, 
the local newspaper reporter who broke the story and Gene Lemon, the oldest boy witness, went on a national television show called We the People. And the sketch artist sat down with him and he did this little rendition drawing on a poster and they were explaining what it looked like. And he misinterpreted what the witnesses were saying and he turned it into this silly looking monster wearing a dress. <laughs> yeah, and that's, that's put, the most common put, rendition of this thing. Yeah, it, it's been seen for uh, 60 years. And when I first released my first illustrations, I'm sitting down with these witnesses for years. Everybody was like, wow, where did this come from? Well, if you look back into the history, and like I did, I found all the original interviews and articles where it described it as looking like a mechanical man. And it actually gave the correct description five days before it was misinterpreted on national television. What I did is I worked and sat down and being an illustration, uh, illustrator, I did these police-style renderings with the witnesses. I did thumbnails, comprehensive uh, drawings, and I worked my way into uh, oil paintings and acrylic paintings, and I showed the witnesses these different pieces, and they said, that's about as close as you're going to get to it. Okay. Uh, the arms that were drawn incorrectly in the original uh, We the People uh, sketch were actually some type of antenna devices that were coming off the planes of the shoulders. The lower torso, Mrs. May was trying to describe pipes, and she didn't know exactly how to tell this sketch artist what it looked like, and she said the, the rows of pipes that went around the lower portion reminded her of the drapes hanging in her living room. You know the rolling of the pipes. Yeah, let me stop you there, Frank. For a minute. I've got I've got the book here. It's, it's not the most recent edition, but it's the one before that. But it's got uh, an illustration on the cover. And for those who happen to be listening on the internet, um, I can hold this up, and uh, Ben's going to put it closer to the camera there. And uh, oh, there we go. And people can get probably a better view than they could of the thing with the dress, uh, which you can see in. I, I guess you did this illustration, Frank, for the cover yes, of the sir. last. Right. Yeah, that it's it's obviously a metallic object, and the pipes you refer to are, are in plain sight, and, the, and this this sort of thing. So that's what uh, you're talking about. So sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. And uh, I worked with Freddie, and I worked with Kathleen very close. I had talked to several of the witnesses over the years. Uh, they were the two primaries that I worked with because they lived in the area of my cousin where I was staying, and they were very open to me, and I would just run back and forth over to their homes all the time, you know, living in Braxton County. And uh, over the years, we sat down and went over this story over and over. It wasn't one or two interviews. This was ongoing, guys, for several years. And I, did, I kept working on these illustrations. Next time I made a trip up there, I would show them to them. I was mailing stuff back and forth. And that's when we finally got this picture down pat of the monster. Uh, its nickname is also known as the Green Monster. And what it actually was is this was a metallic device, say like a, a shuttlecraft. And it was described to me as being chrome-like and aluminum in color. And when they flashed the flashlights, there was an interior source that came out of the eyes 
it wasn't uh, laser beams. They were some. It was some type of an interior lighting system, and this thing reacted, and it's like it was turned on, and the light actually was pushed out of the area where the portholes were. They weren't eyeballs. It was an inner helmet. It was like something uh, was wearing this thing. Something was well, inside. As, of as it. I understand it, this wasn't the actual UFO. That was down in the field below the hill, as I recall. This came out of it. Yeah. And it left a, a path coming out from the craft, yeah. and then it led a path going back. And what the paths were, were actually the propulsion system had uh, forced the grass down flat, like if you walked through a field with a gigantic lead blower and pointed it at the ground. Mm. And that's what this thing did, is it floated back and forth over the terrain. And the reflection from the environment around, from the interior source, made the chrome look green. That's where you get the nickname of the green monster. It was actually like an aluminum color. Okay. Freddie May described, I remember sitting in his uh, living room in Gasaway, and he held his arms out in front of me, and he said the pipes were about as thick as my arms. He said like firemen's hoses. Mm-hmm to give you an idea of the, the massive size of this thing. He said it was about four feet across, and at the shoulders it was about three foot across, and it, how they gauged the height, it was it had floated about, or I should say hovered, about a foot to a foot and a half off the ground. That's what Mrs. May told me. She was within a car length of this thing. Freddie was back a few feet, so he saw the whole thing unfold in front of him. So when I was doing my illustrations and working with the witnesses, it was great because I had one that was, uh, Kathleen was right close to this thing, a few feet away, and Freddie was back a few feet. So he saw the whole thing going on. So that's how I was able to get these illustrations pretty close. All right. Now, I understand that, uh, Ben, did you want to ask this next question here? Oh, yeah, yeah. So, so why wasn't this information released before? Well, no. Well, actually, we're interested in the, the new information that uh, had that has just been released. I guess based on some interviews and the, that had not been released before. What's what's the story with that? Right. Uh, that's uh, some information that I had that Kathleen May had told me during two taped interviews that I did with her over the years. Uh, everybody had known through my research how um, the boys were sick. What I waited and released this a couple weeks ago. Um, I released the name of the doctor and the subsequent uh, sicknesses of the boys and what happened and Mrs. May taking the kids to the doctor. Uh, this thing was a lot more serious than anybody had ever imagined. Uh, Kathleen May's boys, she had to take them to the doctor. His name was uh, Dr. Bernard Hutchinson. She took the kids over to the, uh, this local doctor. There was a couple doctors in the office. He was a primary. And he gave the boys shots. And there was uh, a lot going on. There was a lot of concern because they didn't know how to handle this right off the bat. And to show the seriousness of this, I finally released on the Internet those two segments of her talking about her boys being sick, getting shots um, for over a week. They were, they were given antibiotic shots, and the kids were pretty messed up, the membranes in their nose, their throats. Uh, Gene Lemon also uh, 
was pretty sick, and he vomited and threw up all night. Now, the official explanation is all of this was brought on by fright of an owl in a tree, <laughs> which, is, which is absolutely ridiculous. And uh, I basically wanted to wait till this story uh, was a little bit more uh, further reaching before I released this segment here because it was quite serious. Okay. And now that everything is out, um, it's being taken very serious. Um, I was in Hollywood last October. I was invited to uh, fly out there, and there's a new docudrama movie being made. It's in production now. It's called 701 The Movie, and it's 701 is the amount of Project Blue Book unexplained or unknowns during mm. its existence. And I was contacted by the people out there who are putting this together, Tracy Torme, Inez Romero, and James Fox, are the primaries working on this. They had read my book. They called me up. We talked on the phone back and forth for quite a while, several conversations. And they brought me out to Hollywood, and I sat down, and Tracy and Inez interviewed me on this set. And there's going to be uh, a reenactment done of this. Wow. So I'm working pretty close with them on the descriptions of what this thing looked like. They know the history. They have all my notes. They have my book, and at, at this point, I, I basically, I said to myself, well, the story's out there. It's, it's going to be released. It's going to be reenacted. It's being taken very seriously, and at that point, uh, I decided I was going to release this information about how sick these kids really were. Uh, it, it's been hard, guys, over the uh, past few years. The, the people weren't taking this story serious. And as I kept digging and digging, that's why there's so many revisions and updates in the book, because I keep finding new information and new information, uh, hence the updated, revised, and expanded. And since that book came out last fall, um, I received a phone call in January from another witness, who, which we have uh, coined this, this sighting, the Strange Creek Monster. Strange Creek is about 21 miles southwest of Flatwoods along the um, Elk River. And this particular sighting took place about seven hours after Flatwoods. And this fellow contacted me, and I talked to him for about two hours, and we went over this whole thing, and he actually saw the Flatwoods monster, which had taken off and landed in Frametown. Frametown to Strange Creek is about four miles. Well, seven hours after the incident in Flatwoods, he saw the monster with its helmet off. Mm -hmm. The upper portion of the spacesuit was gone. He saw the lower portion of it. And he was a little kid at the time, and he actually saw this from the second story of his uh, bedroom window overlooking the porch, and there was like a, a roof and a little canopy area, and that's where the entrance to the home was. He saw this thing coming up the driveway towards the house. Really? And it scared the hell out of him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we went, so this turned into an interview. Just, you know, he started talking to me about different things. 
Um, right off the bat, I'm, as with anybody who cold calls me, I'm leery. Sure. I ended up grilling this guy for quite a while just to see if, if who he was, basically. And he knew the terrain. It turned out we knew the same people. And we ended up talking for two hours. We went into the whole spiel and, um, you know, brainstorming back and forth. As we were talking about the area, the locations, the times, you know, the, the whole territory where everything unfolded on September 12th and 13th. And he ended up explaining how this thing was hovering. And what he saw was about nine feet tall, which makes sense because the helmet was described to me as about three foot high. So if you take a three foot helmet off of the figure, you have something that's now about nine foot tall. Mm -hmm. And it was moving up his driveway. And he said the thing that stuck out the most was that this thing was hovering. All right, let, let's let's um, go back to the illness. Okay. Great. Um, what? Looking back on it, what, was any further work done uh, to determine what this illness really was? You mentioned what the official explanation was, but was there, were, were there lasting medical consequences in the lives of these these boys as they grew? Uh, what's the story with all that? Uh, Freddie May later on had developed spots all over his body, dark brown spots. And uh, Kathleen May told me that he was given some type of an ointment cream to, to rub all these. He was covered basically from head to toe with these splotches, and the doctors didn't know what it was. Hmm. As back then, and, you know, when it initially happened, Mrs. May took the kids to the doctor the following day, and they were out of school for over a week, and they were giving them shots. They really didn't know how to treat this. The one thing that these uh, the gas did resemble was mustard gas. Hmm. That was the symptoms, you know, but, you know, mustard gas coming from something like this, that was what it was similar to, the symptoms and the reactions. They used of widely the in World War One and creating serious lung problems, if nothing else, you know. Right, and the witnesses have um, had cancer and been sick ever since. Really? Are, are, are they still alive? Or? Uh, Mrs. May passed away uh, a couple yeah. of years ago with lung cancer. Okay. And they've had, uh, the, uh, the May boys have had uh, cancer and problems right. over the years. Well, too. Unfortunately, that's not uncommon, but I have some questions yeah. on that later on in the show. Right. Yeah, there's a, you know, we can't say it was... That was the cause of it by yeah. any means, but you don't know. That's true. All we know is back then that the doctors were very concerned mm -hmm. over this whole thing. Okay. You know, they didn't know how to treat it. You know, when mustard gas was used in World War One, basically, this was 1952. You know, how these kids would get mustard gas poisoning out in the middle of the woods. Exactly. <laughs> well, that's it. And it was outlawed after World War One. I. I mean, even, even the Nazis didn't use it. In World War II, as far as we know, you know, so mm -hmm. everybody kind of freaked over that. As Hitler himself had been injured with mustard gas during World War One, uh, a lot of people don't realize that. Anyway, uh, what, can we take our break now, Mr. Producer? Yes, we can. Okay, uh, you're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WOON 1240 in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley, and we'll be right back with our fascinating guest Frank Ficino. So stick around. 
Hi, I'm Roth Nahr, host of Community Connections Radio Show that airs the fourth Wednesday of the month at 9 a.m. here on ON 1240. The show is a production of Family Resources Community Action, a social service agency in Woonsocket that helps strengthen families, individuals, and the community. Each month, we invite guests from the community to share news about programs, services, events, and issues of concerns to our residents. Past topics have included youth services, employment and training, and housing and homelessness. For more information about FRCA, call 401-766-0900. Please tune in to Community Connections the fourth Wednesday of the month at 9 a.m. Hope you can join us. We're always here for you. Owen Radio. Okay, and we wanted, of course, in this portion of the show to mention several of the charities Ben and I have adopted. Uh, one, of course, that we talk about frequently is uh, usacares.org. They do great things financially for veterans and their families. Also, uh, locally here in the uh, southeastern New England region, we have the buildershelpingheroes.org. Builders Helping Heroes, a subsidiary of the Rhode Island Builders Association, nonprofit. Uh, they recently built a house with, uh, uh, well, I guess it's Homes for Our Troops in Taunton, Mass. And what they've been doing is uh, they handed the home over to a wounded Marine who had lost both his legs in Afghanistan. And it's been a very uh, happy story for that family in Burrowville, Rhode Island, right in our own listening area here. So check that out too, buildershelpingheroes.org. Also, CanadianVeteransAdvocacy.org. Uh, Mike Blaze up in Ontario has done a wonderful job helping um, legally and uh, legislatively with advocacy for Canada's veterans of the war on terror. So check that out as well. Great folks. Also, a youth mentoring connection in Los Angeles is a uh, sort of an adopted child of ours as well. They're doing amazing things for at-risk youth in South Central LA. YouthMentoring.org. And we're going to have their a rather amazing founder on in a few weeks to talk about indigenous wisdom and wisdom of native tribes and uh, shamans as it is applied to helping at-risk youth. That's kind of different, so we'll check that out in a few weeks. So let's get back to our interview with Frank Vecino, uh, probably the greatest living expert on this, this uh, bizarre year of 1952 when it comes to UFOs and particularly the events in the east coast of the U.S. Now, Frank, as you know, we're always saying that paranormal incidents never stand in isolation. They're always part of a much larger picture. And this seems very true when it comes to this whole Braxton County case. Now, your book, The Braxton County Monster, which we'll give you a chance to talk about in a minute, uh, which I very much enjoyed. It's kind of a ponderous read. There's so much information in this book. It really points out the whole 1952 scenario of which the Flatwoods monster incident was only one incident. Now, in your view, what is the overall picture of what was going on over the eastern United States in that month and that night? Well, the sightings actually had slowed down in, in September, okay? Um, the summer 52, uh, June, July, August, and September, there was 1,134 reports sent to Blue Book of the 1,501 just were in the summer. And the sightings had slowed down a bit in September, and this thing just blasted out. Um, in July, there was 536 reported sightings. August, 326, and September had 124. So it started to dwindle a bit, but the sightings were still going on virtually every day around the United States. Uh, there's a big difference between what was seen and what was reported, which has been documented, and we can do a whole show just on that. But anyways, when this Flatwoods thing hit, it was a lot bigger than I had ever imagined. 
And the hardest part about piecing this together um, was finding the newspaper articles and putting together the Project Blue Book documentation for the whole story. And uh, that's why this thing took so long to work on, because uh, people in the different states didn't know what was going on with their neighbor. Do you understand? Oh, what yeah, I mean? yeah. Now everything bang in two seconds. It's, you know, <laughs> it's tweeted, it's on the Internet. But back then, nobody had realized the impact that this thing had and the amount of sightings that there actually were. How it all came together. Right, and that's what, what I actually did is I pulled everything together. And uh, that's why, why this thing took so long. And in the meantime, I've had people listening to my radio shows who have went to different libraries around the country because basically everything happened um, along the eastern seaboard. And uh, I was able to, and as I show in the revised edition book, um, I had 102 locations where UFOs were sighted over um, 10 different states. Now I have 14 new additional ones. It's up to 116 locations. So what I basically did is um, all these plotted, these plotted points, I started connecting the dots because I knew the flight path trajectories and the locations where they were seen. So I basically worked in reverse, and I was able to trace these damaged craft coming in over the eastern seaboard. The first one flew down towards Tennessee, towards Oak Ridge National Laboratory. The second one flew west towards Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. The third one came right down the middle, called the flame over Washington, passed over Washington, and it points along its flight path over Washington and is headed west. It was a treetop level, and these things were flying under radar which mm. the radar capability was 5,000 feet. So they were well under radar. And this one is the one that crashed in Flatwoods and the monster came out of. Any idea what damaged these craft in the first place? Uh, at this point, I still believe they were shot down. And that's where the evidence points to that these craft were shot down. Uh, six weeks before... It was revealed that um, the Air Force, the Air Defense Command, had orders to shoot them down if you can't shoot, if you uh, can't talk them down. And some of the headlines are like, Jets told to shoot down flying discs, and that was actually the Fall River, Massachusetts Herald uh, mm. newspaper. Yeah, right in this jet, area, yeah. Yeah, jet pilots are operating under a 24-hour nationwide alert, quote, to... Um, shoot the mysterious objects down if they ignore orders to land. You know, and then there's just tons of articles. Air Force orders jet pilots to shoot flying saucers if they refuse to land. That was the Seattle Post Intelligencer. And I keep digging up more articles and more articles. And they were uh, basically chasing UFOs throughout the, from the early 50s all the way up to the late 50s. And they, they were shooting at them. They were actually shooting me down? Well, on this particular night, at September 12th, I was able to track um, four damaged objects coming in that were flying erratically, making multiple landings, crash landing, had pieces falling off of them. So this is what we have as the basis for the whole Flatwoods event. These things were shot down. Um, I was able to, um, of these 116 locations, 
I was able to pinpoint the locations where they went down, the times. They were basically puddle jumping across the United States. And there were 10 eastern states where they were seen. And for our listeners out there, if anybody wants to look into it deeper in their libraries, I'm going to name you the 10 states where these four damaged crafts went down. They were in West Virginia, North Carolina, Ohio, Maryland, Washington, D.C., Virginia, Tennessee, Pennsylvania, Delaware, and South Carolina. Hmm. Okay. And I have the uh, my master map is up on my website, plotwizmatcha.com, and you can actually see what I uh, established by with the flight paths. Well, before we burn up the hour, let's give you a chance to talk about uh, the book, the updated edition, and the website. Go ahead. The the title of the the book is the Braxton County Monster updated and revised edition the cover up of the Flatwoods Monster revealed and uh, if you go on flatwoodsmonster.com you could read some different reviews uh, you could purchase the book by clicking on the link at the top of the website and also what I posted last year uh, I spent quite a while putting this together with my friend Mike Maroney. We put together a 53-minute documentary on the Flatwoods case. And uh, when I went to film school years ago, I had access to uh, nice cameras, and I was running back and forth to West Virginia with these big field cameras doing (laughs) interviews with people. And uh, even back then, you know, the, the teachers and the different people involved in the school of authority were letting me take the cameras because they knew it was a pretty cool project. So I had uh, literally hundreds of hours of shots and interviews and cutaways um, to do with this Flatwoods project. Well, we put together the first documentary, and it's 53 minutes long. And um, if you go on YouTube uh, and just key in, Braxton County Monster, Flatwoods Monster, book by Ficino. You can watch it. I have some of the, um, of course, it isn't all there, all the interviews. I have uh, highlights. The original newspaper reporter who broke the story and was the first person of authority up at the May House, and his name was um, Ailey Stewart Jr., he went up to the farm with a posse. They were armed. They had shotguns. They had uh, handguns. They went up onto the farm with a couple of the boys, and they went looking for what they had seen. And Stewart, uh, being a, a veteran, had kneeled down to the ground close, and he still smelt the remnants of that sulfur and what had settled because he knew gas had settled towards the ground. And he was up there for a little while, spotlighted around. They didn't see anything. The reason they didn't see anything is because this so-called monster, which was a, a craft, small craft had hovered back out into the field to its craft and it took off i use uh, local newspaper accounts and interviewed people in braxton county uh you have to remember this i'm going back 20 years Mm -hmm. a lot of these people were still alive back then that i talked to and i was able to pinpoint the flight path trajectory when this thing took off and left flatwoods half of the town was up there within a few hours looking this thing crashed about 17 miles away in James Knoll, which is in Frametown. Just southwest of Frametown is where this Strange Creek area is. So everything was rotating around that one portion of Braxton County. Um, 
Strange Creek, the witness that I just spoke to in January, uh, he saw this at 3 a.m., seven hours after the Flatwoods event. That night on September 13th, after this fella saw the monster with the upper portion, the, the top part of the suit off, which was the helmet, there was another encounter, which was uh, the George Natowski encounter in Frametown with the car that stalled. You remember we talked about yes. this briefly. Yeah, yes. And with the woman and the baby in the car, same sulfur smell, and George got out to, to walk towards the woods to see what was going on. He thought a chemical factory was on uh, fire. And as he got a few feet away from the car, he was overcome by the sulfur smell, and he vomited. He fell down on his knee, and he was pretty messed up as he got up to walk and turn. And he was staggering back from the wooded area along the side of the road, and his wife was going hysterical. And she pointed up behind him, and there was this thing about nine. He said a good nine foot tall. Um, it was hovering behind him and following him back to the car. Went back to the car. Uh, Snitowski got back to the car, got in. He grabbed the knife out of the, the glove box. The mother had the baby, which was in a, a, a crib in the back seat, and the husband huddled down on top of him with the knife, and this thing hovered around the car. He described it as this, a solid mass, and it was flared out on the bottom, and it was floating. What this uh, Snitowski actually saw was the Flatwoods monster, except he described the flesh and blood portion of it from the waist up. It had a big, gigantic head. It was elongated. And it was reptilian looking and it had a bloated body and it had long spindly arms. And he told, I actually talked to George on the phone and, uh, when he was alive, he's been passed away for years when he, he lived in New York. And I spoke to him. Actually, Edith answered the phone when I called them up. <laughs> I talked to her for a few seconds and, we referred to the article that was written by Paul Lieb in, uh, in an article. It was in a men's magazine. And that was a heck of an article where he gave a lot of details, and he basically told me everything that was in that article was absolutely true. This thing came to the car. It went around the back end of the car, came back up to the front, and now it's pouring out the sulfur smell. They're gagging. It's it's a horror scene. The baby's going hysterical. His wife's screaming like Fay Ray when she saw King Kong. They're going nutty. <laughs> this guy was scared out of his wits. He's hovering down on his uh, on his family with uh, holding a knife, and he didn't look up. They're all down on the front. Uh, um, the underneath the dashboard. Big big 50s cars, you could do that with three yeah, people. Right. Oh, yeah. And they're scared to look up. George finally lifted his head up. He looked across the dashboard through the windshield, and this thing was hovering in front, staring down inside the car. That is even scarier than a Flatwoods thing. He saw what it yeah. looked like in the spacesuit, and it reached down, and it touched the hood of the car, and it burnt. The skin actually burnt right through the paint into the primer, and it sizzled it. 
and there was a fork, uh, a fork pattern in the hood of the car. This thing backed off, and it went into the woods, and it proceeded into the area where the UFO was set back off in a clearing of the woods. And Sintowski was able, a couple minutes later, to start the car, which had stalled in the first place. And this thing took off uh, a couple minutes later. He saw this this craft take off, and it was oval-shaped. And it started swinging like a pendulum. And when it gained momentum, it just took off like a rocket, and it just disappeared. And uh, if anybody wants to look into the swinging pendulum motion to UFOs, it's quite common. Mm. And uh, that's basically how that story ended. So what we have... It's three different locations, three different monsters, which were all the same. In Flatwoods, it was seen in the full metallic suit. When it was seen by the kid in Strange Creek, the helmet was off. When Sintowski saw it later on on September 13th, the helmet in the upper portion was off. And... Uh, I have a couple articles up online if anybody wants to go look at the illustrations that I did. And we have some really cool pictures. Uh, if you just uh, Google in uh, Pacino and the incident at Strange Creek, um, Alfred uh, Lemberg, he's a columnist and writer for UFO Magazine, wrote a couple uh, great articles that are online. And Pacino reveals new illustration of the Strange Creek monster of Braxton County. And Alfred posted those on UFO Magazine blog. And I go into a lot of detail of the actual um, descriptions and what the witnesses told me. Okay. There is um, one issue, uh, one of the few issues you don't discuss in your book. And I, now, I, forgive me if I mem my memory isn't uh, what it should be, but I read it about a year ago. As I say, a lot of information in there. But I, and I've rarely seen it discussed in, in UFO books at all. It's the matter of, you know, whatever these things are, whether they're aliens from other planets or time travelers or, you know, regardless of where or when they come from, there's the issue of alien microbes, all right? The biggest problem with any theoretical alien contact, of course, is exemplified by what happened, I think, when Europeans arrived in the New World. I mean, natives were exposed to all sorts of bacteria and viruses. They had no immunity to them, and thousands died. Mm -hmm. Although one thing I often wondered was how come the Europeans didn't die too and they would have been in the same but I don't know but that's that's the theory anyway now I'm not saying there's any connection here it's impossible to tell uh, but just some food for thought let, let me hit you with this Frank yeah during the same period in September 1952 that the Braxton County incidents were taking place that you described so rivetingly just now there was a UFO flap over England with some unconfirmed reports of alien contact, and within three months, reports of an unknown hemophilia-like illness known as the Christmas disease were surfacing there and in South Africa, where there had also been some UFO incidents. And I'm thinking, as you described the illness of these boys from this gas, you know, could there have been microbes involved, too? Um, in, the, in the U.S., too, in 1952, was this, this uh, polio epidemic that, for, as far as I know, it was never really, there was never any re real reason why it flared up at that point. And then, of course, there's the sickness of Mrs. May and the two boys and, and all this other stuff you describe. Um, I don't know. you have any thoughts on that? I mean, um, I think it's, it's a major issue when UFO contact and almost nobody talks about it. Well, the thing with Mrs. May and, and, and all the boys that were sick, that 
was primarily uh, attributed to that that misty sulfur smelling gas. Yeah, you know, right there because they were walking right through it and inhaling it, and they had no idea what it was until they got up and saw the source of it. So we kind of narrowed that down with that. As far as the microbes, I I really don't know to tell you the truth. No one really does. Yeah. Yeah, they, they really don't. But I mean, it's a thought, not a pleasant yeah, it, one. Yeah, it really <laughs> it's it's a great point. And then on on the on the flip side of the coin is people have brought this point up to me for twenty years. Well, this being that was inside this metallic spacesuit was that like um, something to protect it from the environments and our germs? Why was it wearing that? And did it figure out? As, as, you know, time went along over the next 24 hours that it was able to breathe our air in our atmosphere. Yeah, that, that's a question that arose, and, too. Ben, what, what do you say about it? And then that's why, the, the, you know, this one kid saw it with the helmet off, Santowski saw it with the helmet off, the inner helmet off, and the upper torso. Mm. You know, so, or was it battle armor that it was wearing? <laughs> yeah, who knows? I mean, it's all really speculative. There's really no way to, like have some sort of, like, concrete answer to all of this. Well, there are plenty of questions, though. Yeah, there's, yeah, yeah. there's always questions, but not many yeah. answers. Well, what, one of the things that, that strikes me about this case, and I'm sure this has occurred to you too, Frank, is that this is um, unusual. I mean, the garden variety UFO case seems to be, you cite the craft of one kind or another, it uh, maybe lands, and you see the little reptilian guy or the, the gray or some tall guy or something, you know, that kind of thing. But I, I myself have never, I don't know about you, Ben, I've never heard of a case where you've got a metallic object the thing is riding in, um, going around uh, near the craft, that sort of thing. Frank, have you encountered any cases like this from anywhere else? Not exactly like this. Huh. No, not exactly what are your thoughts like on that? There's, other, there's been other gigantic alien sightings, yeah. but nothing like this. Uh, personally, what I believe... Back then in 1952, the United States uh, started using the, the deadlier, more powerful arms. They had uh, folding fin aerial rockets. They were the 2.75-inch uh, Mighty Mouse rockets. They had the 7.5-pound warhead, and they were starting to use these. And they were unveiled in July of 1952, and the F-86D Sabre Dog had these rockets, the F-94C Starfire and the Navy had them uh, on the F-7U-3 Cutlass. And up to that point, they were just using bullets. All of a sudden, the United States is armed with these rockets, and they're giving orders to shoot these things down if you can't talk them down, and they start blasting rockets at them. Well, surprise, You after that point there when all of these UFOs are crash landing, and I have... Every detail and stickler detail in the book of where these craft went down. They sure do, yeah. And and the new book, the revised edition, I have even more. Yeah. And there's uh, some really cool uh, pieces in there, you know, new pieces that I put in. But what I'm trying to get at is after this happened, you have to look at what the United States government stood back and went, holy cow, look what the hell we did. We shot at these things with rockets. We put them down. we got to be a little bit more careful. This is getting scary. We're having 12-foot monsters roaming around in civilians, yeah. backyards, <laughs> neighborhoods. 
because there was uh, sightings of other aliens that night as well. Yeah. There was a, there was another alien that was found dead up in the area of Wheeling. Shortly Wheeling, after. West Virginia, really? And yeah, that's a whole other thing. Basically, uh, we had one up in the Wheeling area. We had the Flatwoods case, and then uh, there were reports of ro- roving monsters seen up in the Wheeling area. You know, this just wasn't one little isolated thing. There was stuff going on all over, you know, up and down the United States, up and down the East Coast. So do you really want to shoot at these things and have this happen all over again? You speculate in the book that this could have been uh, whoever this was coming in in these craft were, was a, possibly a rescue mission for one or two of the ones that had been shot down. Oh, it, it absolutely was. I worked very close with uh, a lot of vets, uh, World War II vets, Korean vets, uh, and uh, Vietnam vets. And when we had this thing, I didn't solve this whole thing on my own, guys, and I've said this a hundred times before mm-hmm. on the air. I put all the pieces up there and started piecing it together, and I worked with veterans and pilots, and uh, we put this whole thing together and figured it out. It was a search-and-rescue mission because when these objects went down, the United States was invaded by a lot more craft that came in, and they were searching and looking. They were doing grid searches over the United States. They were coming in over Washington, D.C., Virginia, and Maryland, and they were uh, flying patterns coming in at treetop levels. The majority of this information is actually right in Project Blue Book. Nobody ever bothered to look at it. It's right in Blue Book. People were were in the, walking outside, walking with their dogs, babies, and strollers, cruising around that Friday night in their convertibles, and looking up and going, holy cow, what the heck is that? And there's these gigantic UFOs flying over the Washington area. Some of them were coming in the treetop level. So it, it was, it's been there for 60 years. Yeah. What I did is I took that information from Blue Book, and I went into the local newspapers, and it started branching out and branching out, and I found out it just wasn't in Washington, Virginia, Maryland. It was up and down the eastern seaboard. And these objects were coming in from all different directions. The nucleus of the whole story, the target, was Flatwoods. That was the most severely damaged object. They came in looking for it. The UFOs that came in actually searched a grid pattern. They were sighted. You mm-hmm. couldn't miss them. The people were just <laughs> looking up, and there's these things flying around treetop level, around Flatwoods. So just we're running out of time here, but just quickly, what's your next step? Uh, right now, I'm working with the people in California, and we're going to get this thing right with uh, the 701 movie, the docudrama. That would be refreshing out of Hollywood. Yeah, uh, I'm working pretty close with them, and uh, they're very serious about this. They're a good group of people. Uh, I had a television show that was uh, a little bit botched up. I'm going to be nice, but uh, <laughs> I wasn't we too know, happy. We know. I wasn't too happy with it. But anyways, uh, this group is a lot more serious, and I'm working pretty tight with them. And we're they actually chose the Flatwoods Monster to be one of the reenactments within this docudrama. So I'm quite excited about it, and uh, as I said before, the people are still contacting me with information. 
Okay. And where can people reach you? Uh, on my website, okay. flatwoodsmonster.com. There's links up there. And as I said before, we there's links up there for the, the documentary as well. And you can actually see some clips of Colonel Dale Levitt. He was the head of the West Virginia National Guard. He was the commander that went up to the crash site that night. It's the only existence, existing interview with Colonel Levitt, and I have some really good clips of him in uh, this uh, documentary. Outstanding. Well, Frank, it's always a great pleasure. You always have some new information, and uh, keep us po- keep us posted, and we'll. Uh, I will do. We'll Thanks for having me on, guys. Thank you very much, Frank. Yeah, Talk to you soon. It's always a pleasure. Great show. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Great. Frank Fashino, everybody. Flatwoodsmonster.com. Alrighty, so on Saturday, uh, April 26th, my dad and I will be uh, speaking about poltergeists and my dad's experiences with them. And this will be at the uh, New England uh, Para Fest at the uh, Crown Plaza in Nashua, New Hampshire. Oh, I know. No, I, I can I could continue. Please. All right. <laughs> ben has uh, many hats around the studio here. Anyway, this will be at the Parafest in Nashville, New Hampshire, where some people might not like stuff such as we just... Well, I, I don't know. People will like it. We always are well-received. Uh, there will also be some other great speakers on several paranormal subjects, including cryptozoology legend Lauren Coleman and paranormal researcher Tom D'Agostino, a guest on our show a number of times and a good friend. As a matter of fact, we're speaking right between Lauren Coleman and uh, Tom D'Agostino. Uh, we will raffle off two tickets to this event on our April 7th show. That's a $90 value. And find out more at EssexCountyGhostProject.org. And to enter the contest, just write to to us here at the studio. That's WON 1240 at uh, 985 Park Avenue, One Socket, Rhode Island, 02895. Or send us an email at uh, paul at BehindTheParanormal.com with your name, telephone number, and... um, that's just about really all we need, and you can uh, be entered in the contest to win those two tickets. Again, it's Nashua, New Hampshire, not too far away, not even for Rhode Islanders. And visit our show website, BehindTheParanormal.com, where you can find nearly 550 free podcasts of past shows on both ON 1240 and our four-and-a-half-year run on CBS Radio, along with special shows and podcasts. And check our site, NewEnglandGhosts.com, case studies, photos, and articles by moi. You can find my books on Barnes & Noble uh, Nook, uh, e-reader, and Amazon Kindle, uh, Amazon.com as well. Uh, but if you buy them directly at BehindTheParanormal.com, I will be happy to autograph them for you, and you will keep all those. You help us to keep all those podcasts free. Also on our sites, you'll find direct links to the charities we mentioned and uh, Youth Mentoring Connection in Los Angeles included. Now, next Monday, March 9th, right here on ON1240 and ONWorldwide.com, we will welcome one of the most distinguished guests we have ever had during our nearly six years on the air, renowned physicist Dr. Amit Goswami, will join us to discuss quantum physics, the multiverse, and creativity. So get your questions to us at paul at behindtheparanormal.com or just plan to call us uh, during the show. And don't forget about our Facebook page. That's right. So next week, Dr. Amit Goswami. Uh, We leave you this evening with a thought from the great British philosopher Bertrand Russell. A happy life must be, to a great extent, a quiet life, for it is only in an atmosphere of quiet and true joy dares live. I'm Paul Eno. And I'm Ben Eno, and thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey, and we shall see you next time. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.